Hello, everyone. My name is Lydia. This is Carla. And we are joined today by Alex Carruthers. Hello. We are trying a Skype recording today. Ooh. So we are very, very profesh. This is right. very exciting. So, Alex, if you could give us a bit of context or tell us who you are. Alex, who are you? <laughs> I'm the uh, manager of learning and community engagement at a large public library. And my portfolio includes teaching digital literacy, uh, community outreach and engagement initiatives, and thinking about e-learning and what that means in the library context. What kind of community engagement things? Well, everybody who works in the branches has a certain expectation that they do a certain amount of community engagement. So going out and meeting people, attending events, sitting at community tables. And my department is very staff facing. So we think about how do we how do we support staff while they go and do that? What kind of training do they need? And what should they be thinking about and kind of priorities to have? So how they can like build those connections or relationships in a good and respectful way and like what kind of information they need and like going into program development. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When you think about digital literacy needs for the communities that the library serves, who are you thinking about? That's a good question. And it's really a lot. There's a lot of different groups that we're thinking about. We're beginning to work closely with Toronto Employment and Social Services to help job seekers because they've identified people who are on Ontario Works as having one of the different barriers for people who've been on Ontario Works for a long time is being able to effectively use computers to, to get jobs and keep jobs. But there are other demographics as well. Lots of newcomers. Uh, it's another demographic that we're thinking about not all, but some. And there's some really interesting programming being developed to support, forget the name of this organization. I think it's like Youth Helping Parents or something, but it's an acronym that makes a, a word. So it's programming where kids and their parents come in and the kids teach the parents how to use computers and as a way to get the families to be able to spend time together and help the parents feel more comfortable learning this new thing. And we did this really cool... Um, research project last year, we did a big citywide survey of library patrons and asked, what kind of digital literacy supports do you want from the library? And uh, we learned that in some of our, we call them neighborhood improvement areas, so these are really low-income neighborhoods, that there was a need for family digital literacy. So it's the same idea, but, you know, there are a lot of uh, newcomer women who, who would benefit from increased digital literacy training, but struggle to, say find care for their children. So some kind of combined family programming where you either have the kids and parents doing the digital literacy together, like the one I spoke about, or just simultaneous programming. So you have the kids occupied over here and the, the women over here learning their digital literacy skill. And we would approach um, these two different groups in, in different ways. Yeah, what we're trying to start with is figuring out the best ways to teach kind of the best practices as a starting point, and then we'll be thinking about the different demographics that we're serving and how to modify some of our practices to, to really lift the different barriers, the different demographics. And so when you're talking about like establishing kind of the best practices, is that where looking at the educational kind of standards comes in? Is that like how you would actually be teaching these skills? Like what's the best learning environment? Exactly. Yeah. Cool. And in terms of like topics... Have those been 
identified? Or have you seen anyone like articulate clearly what is it that people actually need to be learning when we're talking about digital literacy or in the surveys from the groups, for example? That's a really good question. Depends on the areas of the city and the demographics. There was quite a lot of need identified for really kind of beginner level stuff, how to use a computer, how to use you know, word processing, how to use the internet, how to get an email account, that sort of stuff. And then, but then it really scales. There was a lot of people who were saying, I want to learn how to code because I heard that knowing how to code would help me get a job. I guess digital literacy means different things to many people. And it's very interesting that you bring up gender and context already, right? Because learning doesn't just happen in a void. Digital literacy for an immigrant woman with kids who's maybe at home uh, for the majority of the day is different for even newcomer men or established immigrants or people who are born in Canada. So I'm thinking, obviously, Toronto is such a big community and a big city that how complex that idea of trying to support digital literacy in a major uh, library is. It's a big job. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we, uh, we have a lot of staff working on it. Every day, I think we, I remember another cool thing from this research study we did of, of our patrons' needs. We got this feedback from our library settlement partnership partners who suggested that for newcomers, beginner digital literacy was a real need of uh, the communities that they were representing, like really new newcomers to Canada in the first like year of being there, and that some kind of regular course, so you know, you come either multiple times a week or the same time every week and you do a kind of series of courses in a row um, that all kind of like a like a class where you work towards new things, and you build your knowledge every something like that would be useful, not just because that's a great way to learn coming back every week, but because the routine, the requirement that people are getting out of their houses, the fact that it's building community, all of those, it would kind of hit all of these these needs at once for this particular, you know, community of people who had just arrived in the country, which is pretty cool. Libraries as learning institutions are moving into a direction of seeking to create meaningful interventions in the life of library learners, right? So it's beyond just one shots. We're very good at teaching one-off catalog searches or intros to overdrive or whatever it may be, but how to actually create meaningful learning opportunities that are sustained. That's not necessarily easy because we don't have the same structures of a class, mm -hmm. right? With fees, mm -hmm. assessment, and other kind of incentives, if you will, which can be barriers to many people mm -hmm. as well. How do we empower learners to complete, I guess, that curriculum without being too formal and too structured. That's, that's, I think that's a new area. Yeah, I totally agree. What do you guys think about it? Well, I was just going to play devil's advocate and be like, what's the bad thing about formality and structure? Like maybe that works for some people. And it's when we're talking about having like a pre-developed content and I might imagine kind of a more traditional classroom setting and maybe like a lab kind of context. Mm -hmm. So those are things that people are used to, like maybe assignments, maybe quizzes. So maybe I also don't really know what a formal learning environment in this area looks like. Do you know what I mean? I almost feel like the issue is not whether or not we want to avoid certain kinds of formality. Like I think that it's pretty clear from 
personal experience, but also external evidence that taking a class over a period of time, having ideas reinforced, coming back to the same place over and over again, those are things that help people learn. The challenge for libraries is that because we offer things for free, people won't necessarily keep coming back. And we need to be thinking about how do we provide these in a way where we're spending our time in the most efficient way and we're reaching the most people in the most efficient way. You know, so if you start a class with 10 people and it's a 10 week class and by the end you've got two people coming back, is that something that we should be doing? I mean, we'll probably make a really positive impact on those two people who stick it out to the end, but is that okay is a question. And I mean, I've attended university classes that I've paid a lot of money for where attendance has dropped remarkably, largely based on, you know, the class itself. So (laughs) the instructor, um, what we've spent our time doing. So there's different factors that can go into why someone would stop coming. But yeah, I think offering for free could be one of them. I also think that it's really challenging to assess or have some sort of measure, if you will, long-term timescales. We all have regular patrons who we see over a course of years, right? And they do a lot of self-learning. So learning does happen. It's just we don't necessarily see over the course of four weeks. And how to reflect and capture that, if we will, of you know our impact on their lives, that's, that's a lot more challenging, especially as yeah, they may be patrons for life. So I'm also thinking of, of, yeah, like the big picture of learning, right? That I've said this on previous episodes, I don't believe that learning is linear at all, knowing just my own process, right? So I'll forget things, I will (laughs) regress, I'll jump forward. And I would imagine it'd be the same with any kind of digital skill too, is that opportunity to apply it, and then the space and the time and what context library patrons have in their lives. The complicated situation. So, you know, how do we measure how we frame that? That's where the details are. Yeah, for real. One of the things that we've been talking about is trying to come up with a framework for assessing success that doesn't just mean at the end of this time period, you have got 100% on your test. There's other kinds of learning that happen in libraries and that that happen over the course of people's lives. And there's other kinds of value to being part of a a course at a library that just taking a test isn't going to identify. Maybe thinking about other outcomes. So when you talked, for example, about, you know, the importance of a social environment for some newcomers, for example, to be able to like get out of the house and meet people and start to build a network. So while they're building their digital skills, that's a very significant, what's the learning objective? So that's a very specific like objective of a program that I think is very valid, as valid as learning skill X, Y, and Z. Right. So I think the maybe the, the library's place is to consider some more of those particular positives that we can um, help build for people. And maybe again, doing different kinds of assessment of outcomes beyond just you know the test taking situation, which I mean, arguably education could be doing also. You, yes, you, sure. Like you, you hear about all of the like teaching to the test and all that kind of stuff. So I have no idea what that would look like, but, but maybe that's a similar kind of corollary in that field that we could be looking at. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the things that we talked about too was um, teaching people how to be learners or like giving people a kind of new framework for taking control of their own learning and trusting their own, their own ability to kind of pursue 
personal learning objectives in a way where we're not emphasizing the person at the front of the room is the expert. You just need to get information from them and then stop learning once you've received that information, like kind of challenging that dynamic, which comes out of the public education system and universities. So switching more to like a learner centered kind of approach Mm -hmm. to things. That's huge to not so much teach the specifics, but almost like it's a very meta skill, right? That will last a lifetime. And in our current 21st century experience, we all have to learn on the job every day and in our lives, right? So arguably that's even more important than teaching specifics on how to operate this particular system, Mm -hmm. right? Without being too theoretical, this, you know, this new mode or libraries experimenting with it does make me think, and I've only shallowly started to grasp or get into Jacques Rancière's The Ignorant Schoolmaster. I'm just holding my hands up like, meh. <laughs> so the idea of an ignorant schoolmaster, a person who actually doesn't know the subject, but is responsible or is in front of the room teaching students, but not so much in the transmission model of here I am, I will teach you everything about chemistry, but activating learners own, you know, in this book, they call it will. I don't, I don't know exactly what that will is. To me, that's a very 19th century term, but I hope I'm, I'm correct in trying to relate it to what you were talking about, Alex, which is that capacity and reflective space in learners to Part of it is maybe take responsibility or think about the process of what's happening and realize that it's actually quite active and that all of us maybe yeah learn in slightly different ways. But that awareness is not immediate. And it, I certainly didn't have it in high school. And I'm not sure even in an undergraduate years, I knew kind of how I learned and why and, and what drove me and what stumbled. So I will continue to dig into Rancière a little bit. And I still have trouble like even believing in this idea of like the ignorant schoolmaster, right? Because think of how... You know, we do value experts. In the 21st century, expertise is key word, a buzzword. And we do need some specialists. But at the same time, we are challenging this idea that there's only one correct way to do things and one way to teach. Well, and that also makes me think about the survey response that they would like to learn coding because they've heard that coding is going to help them like, get a job or continue on with their jobs. It's such an interesting concept to me. And and even the idea behind like software carpentry is so fascinating to me because, and maybe this comes back a little bit like to the content or like what is the digital literacy that we're teaching anyway? If someone says, I want to learn coding, like what does that mean? And what does that look like translated into an employable skill? What's the actual trajectory and what's the actual knowledge that, that that person would have to acquire and what's the application of that knowledge? So I think it gets really, I don't want to say a danger, but on the flip side, <laughs> one of the things to consider when we are very much emphasizing, um, you know, like student-centered learning and, and teaching how to learn is some realism and some setting of expectations about what's actually required and what's needed and in what area. And I, I think about it in the same way sometimes with open data which I know is a topic, Alex, that you have spent much time thinking about, as has Lydia, this idea of data literacy and what what is a reasonable expectation that someone should be putting on themselves to know? And what sort of expectations are companies putting on to individuals in order to do critical assessment of certain products or you know, be able to 
analyze whatever about their neighborhood, those kinds of things. Sort of this like information wants to be free, open, open, open kind of thing. Like everyone should learn to code, big, 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 big. But where is the specificity then that would actually get someone to a particular job? And so how do we also balance and help people along those paths if that's the direction that they're going in? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what does that make me think of? Okay, I guess I'll start with the idea of computational thinking as a concept that everybody should learn because the idea is like, I mean, in terms of teaching kids, you want to teach people kind of base concepts because the kind of more specific details are going to change in the future. So you teach them computational thinking now, then they'll be able to interact with the like mind integrated apps of the future because they'll understand computational thinking now. There's a lot of discussion about, like when I say that, I just mean like on Twitter, I guess, about, uh, but I don't want it to suggest that like I'm reading a bunch of academic journals and that's where the discussion is happening. It's because of Twitter. Like don't teach to the test, basically. Don't teach so that people can get jobs. Teach people how to how to be a, a person. And this is the thing that comes up when we talk about like the value of the humanities all the time. You need to be teaching people how to be critical thinkers and, and explore their own creativity and curiosity and um, things like that. And so when you're really thinking about as a priority, like how do we help people get a job, you end up cutting all of those important things out. Or you can, maybe, like there's a risk of doing that because people need jobs now, right? There's an urgency and importance to that kind of mission of like, we're doing this teaching because we want people to get a job now. Not everybody has the kind of the time and ability to kind of lounge in the... In the lifelong learning space. Because <laughs> sometimes we need to learn things for tangible yeah. results in the nearer future. <laughs> so no big deal. The challenge is to facilitate seeing the forest and the trees <laughs> and being the forest and the trees. You're right, because there are material conditions that people need to meet, but they also will have the rest of their life to live to live so it's yeah no no good luck Alex that's yeah. uh, ain't no thing <laughs> so perhaps we can talk about feminism a little bit and you know we, we've discussed this in the past this idea of what does digital literacy feminism look like or maybe feminist digital literacy can we maybe rely on some concepts that we recently discussed in a past episode related to data feminism, right? And certainly affect the role of emotion, the role of embodiment, the valuing of equity are important. So I'll be honest, I never thought of an opportunity to practice digital literacy feminism or being like a feminist data literate type of librarian. But now that you've planted that seed in my mind, I'm going to go all over that. What does that mean for you, maybe? What, what thoughts come to mind when you hear digital literacy feminism? I don't know, man. I think we're, I think we're living it. I think that this uh, podcast so far conversation, we've been talking about, you know, who is included is a super important question of feminism. And that's one of the things that we've, we started when we started talking about digital literacy. That was one of the questions. So recognizing that, say, kind of an emotional barrier to learning isn't reflective of a weakness, but is actually just 
part of a hu- human condition. Like it's just likely to happen in something that a teacher should be taking into consideration. I also saw a new practice that I would like to incorporate myself. I haven't tried it yet, but recently we hosted Code for Canada representative uh, Leah Toledo from Toronto as well. So she was flying back. But during the question period, she did something interesting. She said, and I'm going to try this, and maybe this is new for her. Uh, She said, men, can you please hold off your questions? I'm going to give the floor to women first. And so she Mm -hmm. actively, I guess, by virtue of being in front of the room and kind of like the facilitator, if you will, she didn't necessarily disregard men's questions, but she wanted to give the first go to women. So not surprisingly, Mm. many were too shy or you know, didn't necessarily, you know, volunteer immediately, which speaks again to cultural barriers. I know Carla and I have talked about, you know, in conferences when you just say, well, women should just put up their hands more. Well, it's a little bit more complex than that. Mm -hmm. But I think the more that becomes part of uh, practice, especially in group settings, and this was a heavily technology uh, area as well, right? What happened? I think one or two women did, but again, maybe they approached her one-on-one after. I know they did. Mm -hmm. Some of them approached me to pass along to the facilitator, right? So I was like the second-hand intermediary, if you will. I'm not really surprised the the way it went. And also, we didn't have that many women to begin with, right? Like, they're already not in the room. So we didn't receive any hate mail or any, you know, pushback from men. In some spaces, you do, right? You see that on Twitter all the time. But... I don't know. I that's. I think that's one small strategy. It's not necessarily going to change everything, but the more we're aware of it, I think brings that equity to all parties. This was an example that you saw in practice that's then right, yeah. of someone who you would consider to be working in feminist digital literacy to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. Of. Yeah, Alex, do you want to talk about the exoskeleton of feminist <laughs> librarianship? Yeah, I definitely do all the time. <laughs> Um, (laughs) Well, this conversation came out of us talking about how to be a feminist manager. There's a pretty great, I haven't read all of it yet, but I'll say it's a pretty great new book from Library Juice Press called Feminists Among Us, Resistance and Advocacy in Library Leadership with an article by Shirley Liu, who's one of the editors, who talks about her struggles in turning her kind of feminist values and belief system into practice when she became the director of an academic library, trying to figure out what does it what does it mean to be in a position of power and acting in this way versus being a, in a position of, of uh, kind of calling on power to act ethically. You know, now she's in power. How does she act ethically? And so she uh, envisioned can I just read the quote? Sure. Yeah, I, yes. pra- I actually practiced reading the oh, quote boy. before this. Good. And Good. I love it. Good. I love it. Okay, so she's she says, I needed to figure out how to use my experience to become better attuned to the ways in which our profession and workplaces continue to oppress and yet not center these issues on me and my emotional triggers. I needed an apparatus and visualizing what that might look like was key to a way forward. I imagined a physical support structure that was both an extension of me yet separate. I envisioned a personal feminist framework that conformed to the shape of my body and experience, an exoskeleton of sorts, which acted as a filter for things coming in and going out. And I think that's awesome. I like science fiction. I like <laughs> feminism. I like those things coming together. It's a good uh, metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good metaphor. Why does that quote stick with you now? First of all, because I think that you're really strong when you're an exoskeleton. And that's just nice to think about. I like the passing all the information that comes 
to you through a feminist lens and then using a feminist lens to push information out. I think it's really a useful practice and it's maybe the answer to the question of what's feminist digital literacy. Uh, Just asking that question is kind of one of the things that the exoskeleton does. You know, the data field in, in front of your eyes when you're wearing the exoskeleton is saying, Alex or Carla or Lydia, what's di- a feminist digital literacy mean before, like when you're receiving information about digital literacy? Yeah, yeah that's pretty clear. That's pretty clear <laughs> visualization, right? But you know, when I read that, maybe because we're such keeners and conscientious people on this podcast, but I, I thought how much pressure it is to have to wear it all the time. I mean, in my mind, it was like this aura. So maybe I'm more of a hippy dippy, but like, (laughs) I definitely saw it more as a nebulous, shapeless, soft thing that, you know, filters through, but the responsibility of of being a good feminist and how, how tiring it can be, right? Mm -hmm. To represent a community, to want to be a good human being, to be just when Mm I am also flawed. It's not to say that, you know, you got to do it perfect or don't do it at all. But I commend a person for obviously constructing this uh, metaphor and, and trying to live that practice. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard. And I don't think of myself as an activist. And yet we're obviously very reflect, you know, we're trying to have these conversations and, and I would hope others are struggling too, or, or sort of finding their way through it. So yeah, those, those are my thoughts when I read it. Well, she also talks about, how do you feel that's resonating for you in your practice right now? What, I mean, like, I what need just... did this metaphor feel for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, moving into a position of being a manager made me feel a uh, responsibility to be the voice in the room that's asking these questions. If it's not there already, if no one else is doing it and I'm not doing it, that's a failure. <laughs> that's kind of how I was thinking, like, if I'm the manager, I'm already in a leadership position. I am in a position to say these things and I'd be critical of somebody maybe who wasn't. So that was very, that's very stressful. Like you're saying, Lydia, like it's super intimidating to think like I'm going to be the voice of this perspective all the time. So yeah, so that was kind of intimidating and I'm still trying to figure out what that means. I like the exoskeleton again, just because it's like a, it holds you up when maybe you're tired. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a good way to look at it. Now, Carla also made some comments and um, had some thoughts on this article. What stands out for you, Carla? I know you found some passages particularly interesting. Yeah. Well, I think sort of bringing it back around to the discussion about like embodiment, mm-hmm. um, I really noticed myself noticing this as I started to read the kind of opening of this particular chapter really focuses on her own personal experience and her own thoughts, her own fears, and a lot of sort of self-analysis. And I was like, come on, like, let's get to the meat of this article. Mm -hmm. And so she talks later about how, you know, you've internalized particular structures of, um, like of the patriarchy, but particular structures of discrimination, of centering and the, like, things that are at the center, things that are at the periphery, and how much I had internalized this particular mode of academic writing, which ignores the body, ignores the person, ignores the experience, ignores the emotion. And that's actually what I'm looking for. Like, this is now what I want. Whereas that is also not at all my experience because I do what she's doing all the time. 
this is my mode of operating all the time is from my own feelings, from my own perspective, from my own like gut, from my own sense of what I think is right and what we should be doing. And it was a real kind of moment for me to say like, I can own that and that's okay. That's okay for me to keep doing and for me to bring into my workplace and into my professional life and, and in my role as a manager too. I think it's it's one of the things that really resonated with me here too is I needed to be authentically and wholly myself. If I was going to be a leader who was transparent, inclusive, grounded in my values and able to create the kind of safe environment I wanted for staff and students in the library. And that really is freeing for me because I feel like moving into a role Mm, somewhat as a librarian, but especially into a role of a manager, I really struggled. And I mean, who's kidding, like still struggle with the idea of what kind of manager I'm supposed to be and like putting a manager hat on and what does it mean to be in this role versus another role? And like, what are the expectations of me? And it helped me a lot as I progressed, just spent more time in this position is what I mean to Remember that actually being as much myself as possible is what's going to help me in this particular job. And I will never feel comfortable if I'm not following those things that are important to me and those things that I believe in and that it is for the betterment of others. But at the same time, it's also, it is part of my exoskeleton that I have on is this feminist lens. And so really... It's an opportunity for me to, I mean, see that in someone who has, you know, a, a prominent position in the library that I could maybe aspire to. So that's a bit of role modeling that I really appreciate to have read about. Yeah, just that, that validation of my own experience being good enough and not having to question it or compare it to someone else's and ask continuously whether it's the right thing and whether it's something I should be talking about. I want to recommend another podcast called Secret Feminist Agenda. Okay. Uh, Hannah McGregor, who's a professor of publishing at Simon Fraser. Oh, yeah. Um, she's very active on Twitter. Yeah, she's yeah. just on Canada Land recently. Um, but she's been doing this podcast for maybe two years. And she actually interviewed Baharak Yousefi, who is the other editor of this book. And the title of that episode is Bringing Your Full Self to Work, I think. Something like that. So it's another full, I think, hour of them trying to get into what does that mean and what's that experience like. And I think... Um, yeah, you know, that's not a conversation you hear men, especially those who want to be like good patriarchs, talk about, right? Like, <laughs> what does it mean to be my authentic self at work? Uh -huh. right. Why would you ever go there, right? They just uh -huh. are. They, there's no need for that self-reflection. They just are. Or, or you shut it down, right? And you always try to aspire to be some sort of mold. I mean, I definitely see that. Like, look, we're, we're surrounded by world leaders, community leaders who don't know who their true self are. So mm -hmm. anyway, you're mentioning Baharak uh, Yousefi, I think is a good segue because I know Carla also, I can see marked uh, the passage that says on the surface. That's my cue. <laughs> um, so on the surface, it's easy to point to the hypocrisy of our profession when it comes to declaring our values versus what we actually do. We espouse diversity, but the profession remains overwhelmingly white. We purport to care about privacy and stewardship of our data, yet we turn our information over to closed proprietary systems, thereby forfeiting control without fully understanding the technology behind it. 
We fight for intellectual freedom, yet we allow our collections to shrink in scope and depth in order to purchase content from the same major academic publishers who dominate the market. And she goes on and lists some more examples. She says, but viewed from a feminist perspective, the decision-making process as a whole is one fraught with issues of power and driven by a culture and system that protects the status quo. And so what I really appreciated her talking about in this passage, and she continues on to say, the feminist framework can provide perspective and help us recognize how even well-meaning organizations such as libraries can still create systems of oppression that marginalize, exclude, and consolidate power. Drawing upon my experience of self-oppression, I find it unsettling to recognize the extent to which our female-dominant profession is actually patriarchal. Bell Hooks' observation that most women, and white feminists specifically, quote, have not decolonized their thinking, unquote, feels relevant. There's really a lot that I appreciate in how succinctly she's used this framework to really address so many of concerns and questions I've had about our own profession and how this really helps to explain it for me. Mm, Like, like yes, it is about systems of power and oppression. And yes, that involves women, though that's not exclusively a female issue, obviously. For me, it was really helpful to take that bigger, like she says, macro level view Mm. of what a feminist ideology means and looking at it at such a broad level. That's that's all I want to say about it. (laughs) It was helpful. (laughs) Yeah, and really... um piercing yes kind of yeah yeah in a a good way in a in a like casting a very bright light i feel like some of our darker corners calling some bullshit quite frankly like Mm -hmm. yeah in a single passage yeah she captures a lot so it's certainly very deep and there's a lot there baharak yusefi has a chapter called on the disparity between what we say and what we do in libraries so kind of a response to that or taking that idea further and I don't think you're alone, Carla, in sort of thinking about these things. I certainly watch Twitter and our colleagues across North America, I think, are also thinking about and talking about these things. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that Library Juice Press gave us an avenue to to have these voices and have these thoughts and discussions. And, and I'm glad we have you, Alex, to sort of throw ideas out there and Alex recommended that we read this article so I thank her for that <laughs> I was like read an article <laughs> but I yeah. appreciate it got science fiction and feminism in it yeah, yeah. So. all right so that was pretty deep we had a note about digital activism and privacy with yeah. crypto parties but I don't really know a good segue to talking about crypto parties yeah look up crypto parties okay look up crypto Harlem and learn about cool activism around digital privacy happening around the world. Okay. That's a, like a, maybe a send-off note. Okay. Mm, that's Alex's send-off. Can you tell us quickly why we would Google these why? things and what the relation is to like the feminist digital literacy we've been talking about? Yeah, so these are examples of really grassroots responses to threats to digital privacy. Crypto parties and Crypto Harlem is basically just a, a party where people get together and have a good time, but also learn about digital privacy. They specifically target teaching black youth about this, but bring them together in a way that's fun. And I was learning about these privacy, digital privacy raves that are happening places like, I think, Brazil, where this was a contribution of feminist members of this privacy advocacy group to say, like, rather than talking about privacy like it's so scary, let's talk about, you know, this is a thing that we value. And we're a community and let's get together and 
kind of celebrate privacy and our community and learn about it together. So I would think that these are examples of efforts that are trying to recognize community, recognize affect as essential practices uh, when trying to combat this huge international challenge, which is securing digital privacy particularly for people who are most vulnerable. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's been a very meaningful and rewarding discussion. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. This has been really fun. Yay. Okay, thanks again. We'll catch up with you in six months and see what initiatives <laughs> you're working on then. Yeah, okay. Put it in your calendar. Right. <laughs>